chapter 12, that's where we are this morning in our study of the Gospel of Mark, one of the biographies of Jesus in the New Testament. And as you find your way there, um, there's a guy named Tim Sanders. He was the chief solutions officer at Yahoo at one point in time. And he gave some helpful thoughts about establishing personal priorities. He said, take your life and all the things that you think are important and put them in one of three categories. Glass, metal, or rubber. Okay. Things that are made of rubber, he says, when you drop them, they'll bounce back. Uh, nothing really happens when these kind of things get dropped. So he says, for instance, he says, I love sporting events, so don't take me wrong here. If I miss a Seahawks game, my life will bounce along real fine. It doesn't change anything and nothing is lost. My missing a game or even a season of football will not alter my marriage or my spiritual life. I can take them or leave them. Second, things that are metal. When they get dropped, they create a lot of noise. But you can recover from the drop. You miss a meeting at work, you can get the cliff notes. Or if you forget to balance your checkbook, lose track of how much you have in your account, the bank notifies you you've been spending too much, that's going to create a little bit of noise in your life but you can recover from it. Then he says there are things that are made of glass. And when you drop one of these, it will shatter into pieces and never be the same. Even though you can piece it back together, it will still be missing some pieces. It certainly won't look the same and I doubt you could actually fill it up with water because the consequences of it being broken will forever affect how it's used. So, what is glass for you? Maybe we could even narrow it further. What is the most precious glass for you? I'm not talking like pickle jar glass, like we're talking family heirloom glass. We're talking something like the uh, Rue Guanyao brush washer bowl, which recently auctioned for $38 million for that little bowl. What is glass for you? What is of supreme importance to you? What would Jesus say should be your glass? You should never yield. You should order your days around, every single day around, that you must pray and practice this daily. Um, well, today we are continuing our journey in Mark through Jesus' final week. We're on Tuesday of that week. And today he encounters three traps that are set for him uh, by groups from the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling body in Israel. They've been described as the Supreme Court, the General Assembly, and the Seminary all rolled into one. Okay. And the third, the last of their traps today addresses our questions about what is truly glass for those who follow Jesus. So Mark chapter 12, we'll start in verse 13. Let me pray for us just for a moment as we get started. God, please be kind to us. It's easy for us to resist this teaching or excuse this teaching. Help us to welcome it. Receive it as from, from you for our good. By your spirit now, Lord, help us, we pray. Amen. So, verse 13. The first of the three traps that are set for Jesus. Starting in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees, some of the Herodians, to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and said to him, Teacher, 
We know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, the Pharisees were known to be rigorous Bible guys. They're experts in keeping and protecting the law of Moses. They team up here with a group called the Herodians. Both are part of that Sanhedrin. But we know little about the Herodians except they are likely political types aligned with Herod, hence their name. They join forces in an attempt to trap Jesus. First, they butter him up a bit, right? They're setting him up so that he will freely speak his mind and blindly fall into their trap. But it's interesting, what they say in flattery about Jesus is true, even though they don't believe it. Jesus is no people pleaser. Um, he's not going to spin his teaching to win a focus group. After they butter him up, they ask this question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not, Jesus? Okay. And, and the, the tax that's in view here is a, called a poll tax. It was exacted only on, on non-Romans, on people who are subject to Roman rule. And, and the trick about this question is that uh, it's really not a yes or no question. It's more nuanced than that. But it, so if Jesus answers yes, pay the tax, he aligns himself with Rome and loses favor with the people. If he says no, don't pay the tax, then he's at odds with Rome and that has dire consequences. Tax revolts in the past have resulted in capital punishment. So they intend to put Jesus between a rock and a hard place with this question. It's a sure no-win situation. Turns out, though, it's pretty hard to trap Jesus, you know? So look at Jesus' response in verse 15. Knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, a coin, used for paying that tax, and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is, is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. So Jesus knows their hearts, right? He always knows our hearts when they are disordered and we end up opposing him. He knows. Now the coin in question here, this denarius, was used for paying that poll tax. It bore the likeness of Caesar with this inscription, Tiberius Caesar, worshipful son of the divine Augustus. Probably that's a picture of his mom on the back. Um, one scholar described it this way. He said it's a, it's a portable idol that distressed Israel. And it raised this question, should the people of God give money to and support an idolatrous and religiously debased state and its cult of emperor worship? That's the question they put to Jesus. And so in verse 17, Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So his nuanced answer here is in two parts. First, give back or render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And the practical implication of this is simply pay the tax pay the tax. Jesus would do it elsewhere in spectacular fashion when he would tell Peter to go fishing and find the tax payment in the fish's mouth. You remember that, that story. 
And here many see this as a basis for further teaching in the New Testament concerning paying taxes. In the book of Romans we read, because of this you pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. So as a general rule, Jesus is affirming the teaching here that followers of Jesus should pay their taxes even to corrupt governments like Rome. But just, like, just as the Pharisees' question really isn't about taxes, um, neither is Jesus' answer. He says to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So if the denarius, the coin, is what bears the image of Caesar and belongs to him, what bears the image of God and belongs to him? We do. We are made in the image of God and belong to him. Long ago, second century, a guy named Tertullian wrote this. He said, render unto Caesar the image of Caesar, which is on the money, and unto God the image of God, which is in man, so that you give unto Caesar money and unto God your own self. Okay. That's what you're supposed to give back to him, all that you are and have. So it's really not about the tax. It's not just about what you give back to Caesar, it's about what you give back to God and conversely what you refuse to give back to God. Jesus has turned the tables on them here. Um, it's no longer about trapping Jesus, in a sense he sprung a trap on them, one that exposes the condition of their hearts before the God they say they serve and worship. It's like Jesus is saying, let's not quibble about one little coin, let's raise the stakes. Who gets it all? And they marveled at him. They marveled at him, but that's all. They marvel, and then they just left and went away. Sounds kind of like church sometimes, huh? Jesus has changed the focus again. Now it's about you and me and whether Jesus is really Lord of all, over all, even the state. Okay? Even the state. So the greater authority of God makes no room, allows no room for the state to be ultimate, to command our ultimate allegiance. So we cannot say, America, love it or leave it no matter what. We cannot say that as followers of Jesus. We have a greater authority. Let me put it to you in a hashtag. I'm going to violate hashtag convention here but bear with me God is greater than politics right he commands a greater allegiance of us than any party ever can and in his rebuttal Jesus brilliantly calls us both to submit to the state and then he limits that submission here's, here's a freebie extra hashtag Jesus is brilliant. <laughs> no wonder they marvel at him, right? Second trap we want to look in on today in verse 18. The Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. 
And they asked him a question. So same day, and it's like, uh, it's like a baseball lineup. You know, the first guy strikes out, and then the second hitter comes up. That's the Sadducees. Um, they have their shot at Jesus. They've been described this way. The sophisticated in Israel, in love with Greek culture, in collaboration with Roman power, pleasure-loving, wealthy, aristocratic, with family connections to religious power. But for this discussion, their most outstanding trait is that they disbelieved in any kind of bodily resurrection. Okay? They didn't believe in it. That's why they're sad, you see. That's how you remember it, right? Um, so, in light of that trap, the question that's about to follow is not an honest question. In light of what they believe about the resurrection, this is not an honest question. It's another trap. Look at verse 19. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. So in the resurrection, when they all rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. You can almost see him stepping back and going, gotcha, gotcha, Jesus, right? So the Pharisees have failed to discredit Jesus with their tricky tax question. Now the Sadducees take a shot at it with a thorny theology question. It's an interesting question, but doesn't it kind of smell like a trap to you? I mean, if somebody said, hey, we got a guy who has, he, he died and had a wife, and, and then he had another guy had a wife, two wives, but to go to seven, I mean, that just smells like a trap or maybe even mockery of the whole idea of resurrection. Their point is just that. The idea of the resurrection is absurd in a case like this, and therefore this little hypothetical test case renders the resurrection absurd in all cases. And Jesus has no patience for this nonsense. Look how he responds, verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Ouch, right? Jesus straight up tells them, wrong, wrong. And it's because you know neither the Bible nor the power of God. And this is like, so this is like telling ESPN they don't know sports, right? This is their stock and trade. These were, these were Old Testament Bible guys. And they had power. They knew power. Um, you don't know the scriptures, Jesus says, because the scriptures do teach that the dead will rise. And he's about to prove that to them, chapter and verse, right? They don't know the power of God. They doubt power has, God has the power to raise the dead. And Paul's going to put it plainly later. He's going to say, God raised the Lord and will also raise up, us up by his power. So God is, within a week's time of this incident, by his great unstoppable power, going to forever slay the Sadducees' anti-resurrection position as Jesus is bodily raised from the dead on the third day. And he will raise us by this same power. And the life we are raised to will be different from this life. It's going to be superior in unimaginable ways. 
Let, look where the conversation goes with Jesus in verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So Jesus here is explaining that life after the resurrection is different. Relationships are different there. Um, it's presented as greater. The resurrection life is always greater than this life in every aspect. We could say, your best life is not now, right? Um, it seems that what lies behind this statement of no marriage in the resurrection is that greater than principle. All our relationships in the resurrection will be more intimate than our most intimate relationships here. And that makes perfect sense if there's no sin in the mix, right? As marriage reflects intimacy, I think that our relationships there will be super marital. That is better than our best, most intimate relationships now. So resurrection life is not just an extension of this life eternally. It is to be anticipated as superior in every way, including our relationships. Now Jesus turns from that to address their underlying assumption that there is no resurrection at all. Verse 26. As for the dead being raised, he says, have you not read in the book of Moses? Now, now these guys, stock and trade, were the first five books of the Bible. They were Pentateuch guys. That's all they believed in, really. Everything else was just kind of commentary on that. So when Jesus, Jesus was like digging at them here, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So, so again, they're, they're fan, big fans of those first five books of the Bible. So Jesus teaches them about the resurrection from where? The first five books of the Bible. Exodus chapter 3. So these dead guys, dead for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, are spoken of as alive. How can this be? They're spoken of as alive because they are. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob will be resurrected because of who God is, the kind of God he is, and the power that he wields. One writer said, God is not the God of corpses, but of the living. So, these days, in our culture, when many of our friends who have high-risk loved ones are facing life-threatening illness, and it's scary to them, we have here in the teaching of Jesus a hope that transcends death. So, so this pandemic, with all of its fears and troubles, right? Church, this is our day. This is our time. Your neighbors need this hope that goes beyond the grave. There will be a resurrection. Jesus says when they are raised. Here's, here's your hashtag. God is greater than death. And that's the hope we get to share. There's a third trap. It concerns scripture 
And what is glass to us? Verse 28, now one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, Mark represents the integrity of this guy's question. Matthew and Luke tell us this was also a test, at least at the start. Um, Pastor Sam Storms takes a shot at kind of imagining who this guy was. He says Mark refers to him as a scribe. Matthew tells us he was a Pharisee and a lawyer. So he's a brilliant, well-educated man. Um, and when you put all these descriptions to, of him together, you can see he must have been an impressive dude. Scribe, lawyer, Pharisee. He was an expert in the law of Moses. A man highly skilled in adjudicating religious, social, and legal disputes. To put it bluntly, he said, the Pharisees send in their top gun. The smartest, most savvy, most articulate spokesman among them all. If anyone could get Jesus to stick his foot in his mouth, this is the guy. And his question's an important one that philosophers and scholars kicked around during the day. Um, of the 613 commands of Moses, which is the most important, right? Which one is glass? Jesus answers in verse 29. He honors this man's question. The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So, so this is glass for Jesus. It's not rubber, it's something you can take or leave as his follower. Um, it's not metal, it's not something you can recover from if you lose it. It is the most treasured and fragile of glasses. This, this is the most important thing in your life. This we must embrace and protect. And the flow of Jesus' reply from Deuteronomy 6 is, is helpful for us. He starts with who God is. He says, our, our God is one. So there's only one of him for sure and, and he's unique for sure, but he's also a unity. So when we worship the Trinity, one God in three persons, they are one in essence, in unity. This is who God is. And because he is one, love for him then, Jesus goes on to say, must be undivided. The flow begins with who God is, it flows to our response. We love him with our whole being, our emotions, our spirit, our intelligence, our will. Pastor Sam Storms writes, our love for God must be comprehensive. Notice that Jesus says it's a love that's found in your heart and your soul and in your mind, a love that requires your strength. These are not separate parts in human personality. His point is that every fiber and faculty of your being must love God. Your love for God must be expressed in your thinking and choosing and feeling and speaking and acting. Our love for God must be complete. Jesus says we are to love God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength. Our love must be whole-souled and whole-hearted. Half-hearted love won't cut it. Half-souled love won't cut it. And how do we love God this way? Well, that's why Jesus includes that second commandment. We love our neighbors. 
we love those he loves. That's how we love God, by loving those that he loves. Um, so I have five kids. Uh, four of them are married off these days to amazing people. And, uh, but when they got married, um, I chose to love my kids by loving their spouse, right? I love my sons by loving their wives. I love my daughters by loving their husbands. I love who they love. Now, my sons and daughters-in-laws make it easy. They're pretty awesome people. They're easy to love. But regardless, um, I love my kids by loving who they love. We love our God by loving who he loves. That's our neighbors. Okay. First John makes it a command. He says, this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And our scribe friend who posed this question wisely agrees. Listen to him. Scribe said to Jesus, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So it's interesting here, the, the scribe, he's bold now to take the role of Jesus' instructor. He's passing out grades, and he gives Jesus an A. Jesus, that's right, you get an A. Um, Jesus does not operate that way. Look what happens next. Verse 34, when Jesus saw that the scribe answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. So now Jesus takes the role of teacher and he gives this scribe his grade. It's an incomplete. He has stated what is true. He has identified what is glass. But will he embrace it as such? Will you? Here's your hashtag. God is greater than all other loves. Jesus said, this is the most important of everything. To know God and know his love for us and to love him back in such a way that we love those he loves. Our neighbors. This morning, what does it look like for you to embrace the love of God for you and love him back with all your being so that, so that this becomes your glass? How do you do that? Well, let me suggest some things. Start where Jesus started. Who is God? Get into the Bible meaningfully for you. So you can see and know God and his love for you. I, I love the way John Piper describes the way this works. He says, where does love come from? It comes from being stunned by being loved by God, right? This love comes from being overwhelmed by the person of Jesus dying on our behalf and rising again, though we have no merit at all in ourselves. When that grips you, then you will taste what it is to treasure Jesus, delight in Jesus, and be satisfied in Jesus. So you start by reading the story of God and his love for you every day. You read it every day. You're reminded of it every day. 
It's interesting, this command to love God this way, it comes from Deuteronomy chapter six, and it's often referred to as the Shema. It's just a word that means hear. Um, and observant Jews considered the Shema to be the most important part of the prayer service in Judaism. It's recited twice daily, morning and evening, every single day. It's traditional for Jews to say the Shema as their last words. And for parents to teach their children to say it before they go to sleep at night. So I'm suggesting we can learn from our Jewish brethren in this matter. But we can go beyond mere recital. We can make this our prayer. That we would love God and neighbor like this. And so this morning, let me, let me challenge you. Join me in this. Every, every morning I get up. At night I take off these two rings that I wear. And I put, I put this one on and I pray God, would you help me this day to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? And then I put this one on and I pray, God, would you help me to love my neighbor as myself today? And I think through who the neighbors are that I know I'm going to see. Um, you don't have to, have to use rings. This, this could be your sock prayer. You could put one sock on and pray about loving God and put the other sock on and pray about loving neighbor. I don't care how you do it, but would you join me? Hey, this is... This is the most important thing in your world. This is glass. How about we pray about it every day? And how about we practice it? So this week, let me challenge you. An, an intentional act of love towards a neighbor outside of your home. Not that you get a pass inside your home. That's not the idea. But let me push you outside. A neighbor outside your home. This week. An intentional act of love, something you'd do, some way you'd serve, a gift you'd bring, a word or a conversation that you could have. This week, an intentional act of love. What does it mean for the for wholehearted love of God and neighbor to be your glass? Jesus says it must be that for you. Let's pray together. Lord, it is, it is written in your word that we love because you first loved us. And so God,